God's infallible word. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Christ is risen. It's good to see you all here this morning. Lots of visitors. Happy that you're here. The doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus on the third day is the doctrine on which our salvation stands or falls. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you can be free from sin's penalty. You can, you can be declared righteous before God by faith because he is risen. And Paul's point in today's text is that because Jesus rose from the dead, you can be free from sin's power. As well. The other P, we're waiting for the second coming, the presence of sin. We still have the presence of sin, but we've been freed from the penalty and the power of sin. We await the day we'll be freed from its presence. But in the first five chapters of Romans, Paul taught us that the death of Christ atones for our sins. In the next few chapters, Paul's going to shift his focus to the Christian's freedom from, the, from sin's tyranny, its dominion. And the bedrock of our freedom from the reign of sin is an event, an historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believers are not only united to the atoning death of Christ, we're also united to his sanctifying, sin-killing, life-giving resurrection. Whereas chapters 1 to 5 explain what God has accomplished for believers through the gospel, chapters 6 to 8 explain what God will now accomplish in believers through the gospel. Romans 6 to 8 tells us 
how to experience the gospel of grace. For the next few chapters, Paul's going to explain to us how the gospel is dynamite that produces deep, radical, explosive changes in the Christian's character and behavior. We've, we've already considered how the gospel produces changes in the believer's status, right, before God. Now he's moving into the, the more subjective, internal aspect or work of the gospel and how it transforms us from the inside out. Notice, if you have your Bibles open to Romans 6, or if you just have the handout, how Paul transitions into this new section at the beginning of Romans 6. He introduces his new topic uh, and, and new section in the, in the letter by way of what? He does this often. By way of rhetorical questions. The first three verses of Romans 6 contain four questions. Paul knows what kind of questioning responses, kind of objections, he's going to get. He's gotten them before, right? This is not his first time, his first rodeo, as they say. He's a, he especially knows how his fellow Jews and, and the churches in Rome had, had Jews who had converted to Christ, and he knows how his fellow Jews will reply to the, to the gospel of free grace that he's been expounding for, four, for five chapters now. He's, he knows his gospel will be something of a stumbling block, especially to Jews, not just to Jews, but especially to Jews, even Christian Jews, who fear that Paul's setting aside the law and giving Christians a license to sin. Paul, you're not upholding the law of God. You're making this too easy. The idea of receiving free righteousness from God, rather than having to do something for God in order to get it, is radical and counterintuitive for all of us, really. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like a fair transaction. It doesn't seem possible that God would give sinners who hate him something they don't deserve instead of what they do deserve for nothing. It seems like it would lead to presumption and taking advantage of God's grace. Paul knows which questions are popping up in people's minds at this point in his letter. If, if our moral efforts are worthless in gaining favor with God, then why would anyone bother to do good works at all? Paul, by telling people that God declares them righteous by grace alone, apart from works, aren't you giving them freedom to sin? You're removing one of the things that checks humanity. Won't your so-called gospel leave the door wide open to immorality? Aren't you encouraging presumptuous sinning? Now, what particularly gives rise to these questions is a statement that I've said it's all of chapters 1, to five, one through 5. That's true. But in particular, it's a statement that he made right at the end 
of Romans 5, if you remember. It's been a few weeks, but in verse 20, he said that the law doesn't reduce sin. It doesn't address the problem. Actually, it's quite the opposite, Paul says. It causes sin to increase, to abound. And then at the end of verse 20, he made the claim that where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Where sin is great, grace is greater. Where sin is abundant, God's grace is more abundant. That's, that's the gospel. This is good news. It's true. But it raises some questions for some. And when we come to the shores of Romans 6, Paul is asking our questions for us. What shall we say then? Do we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And I'm reading from the translation on the handout. At the beginning of verse 2, Paul gives a short and sweet answer. May it never be. No way. This is an emphatic statement. And it's, and it's sort of short for not a chance. Of course not. How could you say such a thing? Only someone who doesn't understand God's grace would ask such a question. Paul insists in verse 2 and throughout Romans 6 that the grace of Christ never leads sinners to continue in sin. That's the first point. The grace of Christ never leads sinners to continue in their sin. If your understanding of the gospel makes you think you can have your cake and eat it too. If your understanding of grace leads you to sin because you know God will forgive you, if, if you tell yourself that your, uh, your abounding sin sort of has a good side since it gives God's grace an opportunity to superabound, then the grace that you're imagining is not the grace of the gospel. God's grace is free but it's not cheap. And Paul repudiates any notion that grace allows or encourages sin, people to remain in sin. He explains why this is the case by asking another question in verse 2. How shall we who died to sin live in it, dwell in it any longer? So Paul's argument in verses 2 and 3 in the first part of verse 4 is that the grace of Christ makes sinners dead to sin's power. That's the second point on your outline. The grace of Christ makes sinners dead to sin's power. Paul is using sin here as a way of referring to sin's dominion or power. And if, and if you've died to sin, you can no longer live in it. That's the logic. That's how this rhetorical question is supposed to work. When Paul uses that word sin, he, not just in this verse, but in the surrounding context, we have to remember even back into chapter 5, he's referring to that tyranny. The tyranny. 
that entered the world through Adam. Sin is a tyrant that entered creation, entered history in the Garden of Eden. And it now exercises its dominion over everyone, every descendant of Adam and Eve. When you become a Christian, you're no longer under the reign of sin. Paul's already made this point in chapter 5. Now he's fleshing it out. He's unpacking it for us. It, it no longer has sway over you. When a person is born of God, the chains of slavery to sin fall off. To use the image from the famous hymn. And from that point on, the believer is free from sin's ruling power. Isn't that great news? Isn't that a wonderful implication of the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection? So in a sense, Paul's reiterating his teaching at the very end of Romans 5, in verse 21, where he said that grace reigns in the believer instead of sin. So remember at one place he said that the, the grace of Christ, union with Christ, restores us to the throne instead of sin. And at the end, he says it restores, it, grace is now on the throne. Those are two ways of seeing the same thing. We are not under sin, is the point in both of those images. Sin used to sit on the throne of your heart, but now the grace of Christ does. Now, it's not that sin is completely absent, right? We all know that from experience. Sin is not completely absent in the believer, but it has lost its power. In the second half of Romans 1, Paul said that outside of Christ, apart from union with Christ, apart from a vital connection to Christ, all people are given over to sinful passions, desires. And he, he lists a few dozen ways that that manifests itself. Few, several sins. It's not exhaustive. But apart from Christ, sin ruled over us with such dominating force that we couldn't resist it. We had no chance. Sin's power was too strong for us to overcome. But in union with Christ, connected to Him by faith, it's no longer the case. Sin can't dominate the born-again believer. In Christ, fellow believers, you have the power to resist, even to rebel against the dictates of that dictator, sin. There's a new power at work in our lives. Colossians 1.3 says, He has delivered us, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Acts 26, 18 records Jesus saying that, telling Paul and saying that Paul's gospel comes to people, quote, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. We can illustrate the point by thinking of a country, a nation, 
that's under the complete control of an evil, oppressive military regime. The wicked regime is characterized by corruption, evil, oppression, death, destruction, all the rest. But one day, uh, a good army comes and overthrows the evil regime, removing its dictator from power and restoring the seat of government to the people. The nation is redeemed by a new, more powerful army. After the defeat of the old regime, its soldiers have no resources, no power, no authority any longer in this country. They're driven into hiding into the bush. Sadly, though, there are pockets within the redeemed nation that willfully harbor these soldiers instead of turning them into the authorities and driving them out. And from these safe havens, the wicked soldiers of the old regime launch guerrilla warfare on the new government, on the people. They wreak havoc in the redeemed nation. The old army has no chance of getting back into power, but it often gains footholds and imposes its will here and there on the country. A redeemed person is like that redeemed nation. In Christ, you've died to sin, which no longer has any authority over you. Christ has destroyed the reign of sin, and now there's a new ruler sitting on the throne of your heart called grace. It's Christ. But this doesn't mean that sin is no longer in you or that it never has any influence. Sadly, we still harbor the sin whose power Christ has destroyed. We all have safe havens where we let sin and sin hide and launch guerrilla attacks on the new government that Christ has set up. Sin, you see, often wreaks havoc in the redeemed person. It often gains footholds and imposes its will on the believer. But sin no longer can do this apart from something more powerful, you allowing it. Sin no longer can control you or oppress you. It's no longer your dictator. As a believer, the decision to obey Christ and to disobey sin is always and every time yours. Now, Scripture predicts that you and I will sometimes decide to obey sin and disobey Christ, but the fact remains that you never have to obey sin. You've died to it. It's dead to you. It's dead to you in a way it's not dead to those outside of Christ. And it can only wreak havoc through that guerrilla warfare to the extent that you let it. So the question you should ask yourself every morning and every hour and every time sin tries to reclaim its position of power in your life is the question Paul asks in verse 2. 
How can I? Why would I continue to live in sin now that its regime has been defeated in me? How can I? Why would I let envy have a foothold in my heart now that the army to which it belongs has been decimated by the gospel? How can I? Why would I keep harboring resentment and bitterness now that the regime to which it belongs has been put to open shame through the cross? How can I? Why would I let sin reign in my thoughts or in my tongue now that God has disarmed all the evil rulers and authorities and has disgraced them publicly, triumphing over them in Christ? Colossians 2, 15. Not everyone has died to sin. Many people are still being ruled by the merciless dictator. So how do we know, how do you know, if you are one of those who has died to sin? Well, in this case, Paul points you to your baptism. In verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him through baptism into death. Now, there are two types of error that interpreters commit when they come to this passage. One error is to deny that Paul is referring to baptism, to water baptism in these verses. This contradicts the straightforward meaning as well as the interpretation of, of the church, the church fathers and the reformers. It's not necessary that we do that. There, there's no reason to think Paul is talking about anything other than Christian baptism here. And in fact, it's very difficult to imagine the churches in Rome taking him to mean something other than that, uh, unless he would have clarified and qualified, which he didn't. So that's one error that we don't need to fall into. We don't need to be afraid of falling into other errors if, if we embrace that Paul is talking about baptism. But, but there's another error to, is to assume that Paul thinks every baptized person has been born again, which is not what Paul is teaching or ever teaches. The New Testament, Paul included, recognizes over and over again that while we can expect all true believers to receive baptism, not every baptized person is a true believer. John is particularly clear on this point in his gospel, which we went through for over a couple years. And in his epistles, 1 John 3, 6-9 teaches that there are two types of baptized person. Remember, remember, these letters are written to churches to baptize people. And, and there John says, there are those baptized who live in God, and there are those who live in sin. It's very similar ideas and terminology that Paul's using in Romans 6 about where you're living, where you dwell. There are those whose father is God, John says, and there are those who are still of the devil. And John, he actually says that their father is the devil. Again, covenant members. 
Only those who live in God are true children of God. 1 John 3, 9. No one who has been born of God continues to sin. And what that means is uh, continues in a sin that leads to death, to use another phrase from Scripture. This is talking about apostasy. Of course, everyone continues to sin in some sense until we die. But what John is saying here is that no one who has been born of God continues to live in sin in the way that uh, unbelievers do, the way those who are not united to Christ do. And then he says, why? Because God's seed remains in him. So if God's seed, is in, if God's seed remains in you, you can't remain in sin. He is not able to continue sinning because he has been born of God. Now, again, John isn't saying that those who are born of God never sin. He only means that those who have received the new birth that he's talking about, being born of God, will show evidence that they are no longer under sin's power. That's one way we could paraphrase that. We'll, we'll no longer will not continue or remain under sin's power. To use Paul's language, those who have been born of God will not continue to live in sin any longer. Now, Paul doesn't know human hearts. Only God does. But Paul does know that the members of the churches in Rome have been baptized. So he points each of them to their Christian baptism, which is the sign and the seal of the new birth in Christ for everyone who has been born of God. Baptism marks the point when a believer publicly, ritually, sacramentally is united with Christ. A person is united to Christ in a saving way by faith, born again by faith. The new birth happens by faith, through faith alone. But elsewhere in the book of Titus, Paul refers to baptism as the washing of that new birth, the washing of that regeneration. For those born of God, baptism is the sign and seal of the new birth. Baptism offers, you see, every spiritual blessing in Christ to everyone who is baptized. But, but baptism does more. It actually bestows every spiritual blessing in Christ on those who receive those blessings with saving faith on those who have been born of God. This isn't one of those passages where Paul is inviting you to wonder if you've been born of God, to wonder if you're one of his children, to wonder if you're truly united to Christ. Paul does do that in other places, and there is a place for that. There are times when a baptized Christian needs to wonder if he's really in the faith. In 2 Corinthians 13, for example, Paul says that some of the baptized Christians in Corinth need to examine themselves to see if they're truly in Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Remember that word test. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? OK, 
Okay, that's kind of an, uh, referring to the objective reality. You've been baptized. Don't you realize that this, that Jesus Christ is in you? But then he continues, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Okay, See, so this is a verse in Scripture where Paul takes baptized Christians beyond their baptism. And notice that he doesn't, doesn't want them to take comfort in that objective outward reality of having been baptized into Christ. He wants them to test themselves, to examine themselves, to see if it was real. See, their problem is beyond that. And there are times when baptized Christians should not take comfort in their baptism. And if you're content to live in sin, if there's no godly remorse over your, for your rebellion, if there's no progress in that, that war, that fight against sin, if sin is running rampant in your heart and mind and body as if it's still in power, then 2 Corinthians 13, 5 might be the verse for you. But if you're a child of God who hates sin and who wants to keep killing it, if you're fighting against sin and continually bombing those safe havens in your heart, then Romans 6, 3, and 4 is the passage for you. And there Paul says that in your baptism, you died to sin in union with Christ. In your baptism, God confirmed your death to sin and made it official. He poured on you the washing of the new birth. In, in the ceremony of baptism, God publicly put his name on you and gave you a new identity. You've been baptized, Paul says. Therefore, you belong to Christ. You're in him. He is in you. You have been united to his death, which is a death to sin. Paul says elsewhere, Jesus died to sin and in him we've died to sin. Just as Jesus died to sin, you have also died to sin. This is who you are now. So be who you are. That's, the, that's what Paul, that's the message. That's the exhortation. Live in a way that matches your identity. Your God-given one. You're a baptized Christian, so act like it. You're dead to sin, so behave like it. And this isn't Paul encouraging baptized Christians to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's not moralism. No, the whole point here, underlying the imperative, is an indicative. The whole point is that God's grace is something that happened to you. It's true of you because God has made it true in his grace and by his grace alone, just as baptism is something that happened to you, that you received, that was done to you passively. Freedom from sin's power is something you received from God. Union with Christ is something you received from God. But Paul doesn't only say that we've died with Christ. He also says that we've been raised with him. Look at verses 4 and 5. We were buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, 
certainly we will also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. So this brings us to our final point, which is that the grace of Christ always raises sinners to walk in newness of life. The grace of Christ always raises sinners. Without fail, raises sinners to walk in newness of life. Death and resurrection with Christ lead inescapably to a changed life, a transformed life. If you've died with Christ, you died to sin. If you've been raised with Christ, you won't live in sin. Resurrection life doesn't live in sin. Instead, you'll walk in newness of life. We need to see in verse 5, especially in, in this chapter, as we walk through, we'll see this more, both an already aspect and a, and a not yet element. In union with Christ, believers already experience Resurrection life. It's like the future has come into the present. Not fully, but already. But we also await. See, there's a not yet because we also await the resurrection of the body on the final day. And Paul's going to get into that in detail in Romans 8. You're able to walk in newness of life because the power of Christ's resurrection flows through your spiritual veins by virtue of your union with Christ. His life is now your life. This resurrection power that brings newness to life of life to your existence is the same thing that Jesus calls rivers of living water in John 7 that flow out of your heart. The rivers of living water, the power of Christ's resurrection enable you to walk in newness of life. This passage speaks to identity. I've already used that word a couple times. Some might say that's a modern word or a modern sort of concept or has modern baggage. But it's, it, it helps us get at, to a, a need that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It gets at a problem that has plagued humanity ever since the fall of mankind. Everyone is in search of an identity. Who am I? Where did I come from? Who do I belong to? And all the questions about significance and meaning are attached to those questions. Everyone is in search of answers to those questions questions whether they know how to ask them or not. Most have not found satisfying answers, but, but they have no choice but to keep searching because no human can rest when he doesn't know who he is and what his life means and who his father is. The, the identity crisis going on all around us, it's one way to describe what's going on around us, and but not just in the world, but also among many in the church, the identity crisis is the result of people trying to find their identity or significance in themselves and their story, 
and their image that they're trying to project rather than in Christ and in his grand narrative. When I, when I come home at the end of the day, my one-year-old yells wherever he is, Dada! And if he's not in the high chair or tied up, you know, behind the cage, you know, the play area, he'll, he'll run to me, Dada! And when I pick him up and, and play with him, he smiles and he, he just rests in my arms. There's not a worry in the world. He knows he belongs to me. He knows I, I love him unconditionally. He's not worried about trying to earn any favor with me. He, he knows he's safe, secure, accepted. There's zero insecurity, zero anxiety about the future, zero identity crisis, right? He sort of just gets lost in my arms or in my presence or in my delight, if you want to experience that kind of security and soul rest, as Jesus calls it, then let yourself be lost in Christ. Let yourself die in him. And then you will find the life and the meaning and the identity that you've been looking for. It's not going to look like what you thought it would look like because what you're looking for is not the right thing. When you lose your life in Christ, that is when you finally find it, Jesus says. And I'm talking to Christians here as well as non-Christians. Many of us in this sanctuary are still trying to find our best life instead of trying to lose it. We, we haven't fully bought into the promise of Christ that whoever loses his life will find it. Now, that's true in an ultimate physical sense. It applies to those who are facing persecution, martyrdom. When they lose their life, they find it. But there's a principle there that applies to every one of us every day, even if we're not martyrs. We're not quite all in with Paul when he says in a, uh, sort of a, a companion passage to our sermon text from Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul found rest, security, and knowing that Jesus loved him and gave himself for him. And this knowledge enabled him to crucify his own life, to be crucified, to die, and let the resurrected Christ live through him, in him. That's what it means to die with Christ and to walk in newness of life. It means to nail your life to the cross. All your ambitions, all your pettiness. To nail it all to the cross and to let the resurrected Son of God live in you. 
Are you ready to crucify your, your best life on the cross and let the risen Lord live in you? Are you ready to stop chasing happiness that you'll never catch up to anyway? Are you ready to let your soul find rest in God alone? If you want to rid yourself of those insecurities and anxieties and the weariness and the self-centeredness that, that drive you, maybe even that wake you up in the morning and get you going in a dysfunctional kind of way, then remove yourself from the center of the story and realize that true meaning and significance cannot be found in yourself, in your own personal narrative that you're trying to write. It can only be found in God and in your eternal fellowship with him in Christ, in union with Christ, in union more specifically with Christ's death and resurrection. Lose yourself in God and there you will find true life. Your life is meaningful, as one modern theologian put it, because Jesus has already walked this journey ahead of you to prepare the way. He went all the way down into the grave and out the other side. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and now he dwells in the house of the Lord forever. And this is the gospel promise. What's true of Jesus is and will be true of you. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. His spirit is your spirit. His father is your father. His righteousness is your righteousness. His holiness is your holiness. His sonship is your sonship. His blessings in the heavenly realms are your blessings in the heavenly realms. His kingdom is your kingdom and it will have no end. Christ the King Church, in light of the hope that is yours in Christ, in the resurrected Christ, in light of the eternal bliss, the eternal joy that is yours in Christ at God's right hand, in light of the future resurrection life that is already yours in Christ, consider yourself dead to the power of sin. Do not live in sin any longer and walk today and forevermore in the newness of resurrection life. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Oh God, you are glorious and mighty and in your glory and might you raised Jesus from the dead and you exalted him to your right hand and he was raised for our justification our hearts overflow with gratitude for what you have done for us your people and we thank you for sending your spirit who unites us to the death and the resurrection. And so we ask you, through your spirit, through the word that we've considered today, to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Jesus, and to help us to walk in the newness 
of his life. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.